Section 50 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3. Book 3. Chapter 1. The Massacre of St. Bartholomew. 1. The children awoke. The little girl was the first to open her eyes. The waking of children is like the opening of flowers, and like the flowers these pure little souls seem to exhale fragrance. Georgette, the youngest of the three, who last May was but a nursing infant, and now only twenty months old, lifted her little head, sat up in her cradle, looked at her toes, and began her baby talk. A ray of light fell upon the crib. It would have been difficult to say which was the rosier, Georgette's foot or the dawn. The other two children still slept, boys always sleep more soundly than girls, while Georgette, contented and peaceful, began to prattle. Rene Jean's hair was brown, Groalan's auburn, and Georgette's blonde, all shades peculiar to their ages, which would change as the children grew older. Rene Jean looked like an infant Hercules as he lay there on his stomach, fast asleep, with his two fists in his eyes. Groalan had thrust his legs outside his little bed. All three were in rags. The clothes given them by the battalion of the Bonnet Rouge were in tatters. They had not even a shirt between them. The two boys were almost naked and Georgette was bundled up in a rag which had formerly been a petticoat, but which now served the purpose of a jacket. Who had taken care of these little ones? It would be impossible to tell. Certainly not a mother. Those savage peasants who had carried them along as they fought their way from forest to forest gave them their share of the soup, and nothing more. The little ones lived as best they could. They had masters in plenty, but no father. Yet childhood is enveloped by an atmosphere of enchantment that lends a charm to its very rags and these three tiny beings were delightful. Georgette chattered away. The child prattles as the bird sings, but it is always the same hymn, indistinct, inarticulate, and yet full of deep meaning. Only the child, unlike the bird, has the dark fate of humanity before it. None can listen to the joyous song of a child without a sense of sadness. The lisping of a human soul from the lips of childhood may well be called the most sublime of earthly songs. This confused murmuring of thought, which is as yet mere instinct, contains an unconscious appeal to eternal justice. Perhaps it is a protest uttered on the threshold of life, an unconscious protest, distressing to hear. Ignorance, smiling on the infinite, seems to make all creation responsible for the fate allotted to a weak and defenseless being. Should misfortune befall, it would seem like an abuse of confidence. The prattle of a child is more and less than speech. It is a song without notes, a language without syllables, a murmur that begins in heaven but is not to end on earth. As it began before birth, so it will go on after death. As the lispings are the continuance of what the child said when he was an angel, they are likewise a foreshadowing of what he will say in eternity. The cradle has its yesterday, as the grave has its morrow, and the double mystery of both mingles with this unintelligible babble. There is no such proof of God, of eternity, of responsibility, and of the duality of destiny, as is this awe-inspiring shadow which we see resting upon a bright young soul. Still, there was nothing melancholy about Georgette's chatter, for her sweet face was wreathed in smiles. Her mouth, her eyes, the dimples in her cheeks all smiled in concert, and by this smile she seemed to show her delight in the morning. The human soul believes in sunshine. The sky was blue, the weather warm and beautiful, and this frail creature, neither knowing nor comprehending the meaning of life, living in a dream, as it were, felt safe amid the loveliness of nature, with its friendly trees and its pure verdure, 
the serene and peaceful landscape, with the noises of birds, springs, insects, and leaves, and above all the intense purity of the sunshine. Ranejan, the oldest of the children, a boy over four years old, was the next one to wake. He stood up, jumped out of his cradle like a little man, discovered his porringer as the most natural thing that could happen, seated himself on the floor, and began to eat his soup. Georgette's prattle had not roused Groalan, but at the sound of the spoon in the porringer he started and opened his eyes. Groalan was the three-year-old boy. He too saw his bowl, and, as it was within reach of his arm, he seized it and, without getting out of bed, with his dish on his knees and his spoon in his fist, he straightway followed the example of Ronne Jean. Georgette did not hear them. The modulations of her voice seemed to keep time with the cradling of a dream. Her large eyes, gazing upward, were divine. However gloomy may be the vault over a child's head, heaven is always reflected in its eyes. When Ronne Jean had finished, he scraped the bottom of the porringer with the spoon, sighed, and remarked with dignity, I have eaten my soup. This roused Georgette from her dreaming. Soup, said she. And seeing that Ronne Jean had finished his, and that Groalan was still eating, she took the bowl of soup which stood beside her and began to eat, carrying the spoon quite as often to her ear as she did to her mouth. From time to time she renounced civilization and ate with her fingers. When Groalan had scraped the bottom of his porringer, he jumped out of bed and trotted after his brother. 2. Suddenly from below rang the blast of a clarion, stern and loud, coming from the direction of the forest, to which a trumpet from the summit of the tower made reply. This time the clarion called, and the trumpet answered. And again came the summons from the clarion, followed by the reply of the trumpet. Then from the edge of the forest rose a voice, distant but clear, shouting distinctly, Brigands, a summons! If by sunset you have not surrendered at discretion, we shall begin the assault. A voice that sounded like the roar of a wild beast answered from the top of the tower. Attack! The voice from below replied, A cannon will be fired as a last warning half an hour before the assault. And the voice from above repeated, Attack! The children did not hear these voices, but the clarion and the horn echoed louder and more distinctly, and at the first sound Georgette craned her neck and ceased eating. She had dropped her spoon into the porringer, and at the second blast from the clarion she lifted the tiny forefinger of her right hand, and, alternately raising and letting it fall, she marked the time of the trumpet, that was prolonged by the second call of the horn. When the horn and the clarion were silent, with her finger still uplifted, she paused dreamily, and then murmured to herself, Music. She probably meant music. The two older ones, Ronne Jean and Groalan, had paid no attention to the horn and the clarion. They were absorbed by another object. Groalan, who had spied a woodlouse in the act of crawling across the library floor, exclaimed, A creature! Ronne Jean ran up to him. It pricks, continued Groalan. Don't hurt it, said Ronne Jean. And both the children set themselves to watch the traveller. Meanwhile, Georgette, having finished her soup, was looking about for her brothers, who, crouching in the embrasure of a window, hung gravely over the woodlouse, their heads so close together that their hair intermingled. Holding their breath, they gazed in astonishment at the creature, which, far from appreciating so much admiration, had stopped crawling and no longer attempted to move. Georgette, seeing that her brothers were watching something, desired to know what it might be. It was no easy matter to reach them, but she undertook it nevertheless. The journey fairly bristled with difficulties. All sorts of things were scattered over the floor. Stools turned upside down, bundles of papers, packing cases which had been opened and left empty, 
trunks, all sorts of rubbish, around which she had to make her way. A very archipelago of reefs, but Georgette took the risk. Her first achievement was to crawl out of the crib, then she plunged among the reefs. Winding her way through the straits and pushing aside a footstool, she crawled between two boxes and over a bundle of papers, climbing up one side, rolling down on the other, innocently exposing her poor little naked body, and finally reached what a sailor would call the open sea. That is to say, quite an expanse of floor, unencumbered by rubbish and free from perils. Here she made a rush, and with the agility of a cat she crept across the room on all fours as far as the window, where she encountered a formidable obstacle in the shape of the long ladder, which, lying against the wall, ended at this window, reaching a little beyond the corner of the embrasure, thus forming a sort of promontory between Georgette and her brothers. She paused and seemed to consider the subject, and when she had solved the problem to her satisfaction, she resolutely clasped her rosy fingers about one of the rungs, which, as the ladder rested on its side, were not horizontal but vertical, and tried to pull herself up onto her feet. And when, after two unsuccessful attempts, she at last succeeded, she walked the entire length of the ladder, catching one rung after the other. On reaching the end her support failed, she stumbled and fell. But, nothing daunted, she caught at the end of one of its enormous poles with her tiny hands, pulled herself up, doubled the promontory, looked at Rene Jean and Groalan, and burst out laughing. 3. Just then Rene Jean, satisfied with the result of his investigations of the woodlouse, raised his head and affirmed, It is a female. Georgette's laughter made Rene Jean laugh, and Groalan laughed because his brother did. Georgette, having effected her object and joined her brothers, they sat round upon the floor as in a sort of diminutive chamber, but their friend the woodlouse had vanished. It had taken advantage of Georgette's laughter and hidden itself away in a crack. Other events followed the visit of the woodlouse. First some swallows flew by. Their nests were probably under the eaves. They flew quite close to the window, somewhat startled at the sight of the children, describing great circles in the air, and uttering their sweet spring note. This made the three children look up, and the woodlouse was forgotten. Georgette pointed her finger at the swallows, crying, Biddies! Rene Jean reprimanded her. You mustn't say biddies, Missy. You must say birds. Birds, said Georgette, and all three watched the swallows. Then a bee flew in. Nothing reminds one of the human soul more than the bee, which goes from flower to flower as a soul from star to star, gathering honey as the soul absorbs the light. This one came buzzing in with an air of great stir, as if it said, Here I am, I have just seen the roses, and now I have come to see the children. What is going on here, I should like to know? A bee is a housekeeper, scolding as it hums. As long as the bee stayed, the children never once moved their eyes from it. It explored the entire library, rummaging in every corner, flying about quite as if it were at home in its hive. Winged and melodious, it darted from case to case, peering through the glass at the titles of the books, just as if it had a brain and, having paid its visit, it flew away. It has gone home, said Rene Jean. It is an animal, remarked Groalan. No, replied Rene Jean. It is a fly. A fly, said Georgette. Then Groalan, who had just found a string on the floor with a knot in the end, took the other end between his thumb and his forefinger, and having made a sort of windmill of the string, he was deeply absorbed in watching its whirling. Georgette, on her part, having returned to her former character of quadruped, and started again on her capricious journeys across the floor, had discovered a venerable armchair with moth-eaten upholstery, from which the horsehair was falling out in several places. She had stopped before this armchair, and was carefully enlarging the holes and pulling out the horsehair. 
Suddenly she raised her finger to attract her brothers' attention and make them listen. They turned their heads. A vague, faraway sound could be heard outside, probably at the attacking camp executing some strategic maneuver in the forest. There was a neighing of horses, a beating of drums, a rolling to and fro of caissons, a clanking of chains, and military calls and responses echoed on every side, a confusion of wild sounds, whose combination resulted in a sort of harmony. The children listened in delight. It is the good God who does that, said Groalang. 4. The noise ceased. Ranejan had fallen into a dream. How are ideas formed and scattered in those little minds? What is the mysterious action of those memories so faint and evanescent? In this dreamy little head there was a confused vision of the good God, of prayer, of clasped hands, of a certain tender smile that had once rested on him, and which now he missed. And Ranejan whispered half aloud, Mama, Mama, said Groalan. Repeated Georgette. Thereupon Rene Jean began to jump, and Groalan lost no time in following his example, imitating all the movements and gestures of his brother. Not so, Georgette. Three years may copy four, but twenty months preserves its independence. Georgette remained seated, uttering a word now and then. She had as yet achieved no success in sentences. She was a thinker, and only uttered monosyllabic apothems. After a few moments, however, she succumbed to the influence of example, and began her attempt to imitate her brothers, and these three pairs of naked little feet began to dance, run, and totter about in the dust that covered the old oaken floor, under the serious eyes of the marble busts, towards which Georgette from time to time threw an uneasy glance, whispering, The mamans. In the language of Georgette, a mamam was anything that looked like a man without really being one. Living beings are strangely confused with ghosts in the minds of children. As Georgette tottered along after her brothers, she was always on the verge of descending to all fours. Suddenly Rene Jean, who had gone near the window, raised his head, but dropped at the next moment, and ran to hide in a corner formed by the embrasure of the window. He had caught sight of someone looking at him. It was one of the Blues, a soldier from the encampment on the plateau, who, taking advantage of the armistice, and perhaps somewhat infringing thereon, had ventured to the edge of the escarpment from whence he had gained a view of the interior of the library. Seeing Rene Jean hide, Groalan hid also. He cuddled down close by his brother's side, and Georgette hid herself behind them, and there they stayed silent and motionless, Georgette laying her finger on her lips. After a few moments Rene Jean ventured to put out his head, but finding the soldier still there, he quickly drew it back, and the three children hardly dared to breathe. This lasted for quite a long time, but finally Georgette grew tired of it. She plucked up the courage to look out, and behold, the soldier had gone, and once more they began to run and play. Groalan, although an imitator and admirer of Rene Jean, possessed a talent peculiarly his own, that of making discoveries, and his brother and sister now beheld him prancing in wild delight, dragging along a little four-wheeled cart which he had unexpectedly discovered. This doll carriage had been lying there for years, forgotten in the dust, side by side with works of genius and the busts of sages. Perhaps Govan may have played with it when he was a child. Groalan had converted his bit of string into a whip, which he cracked with great exultation. Thus it is with discoverers. If one cannot discover America, one can at least find a small cart. It amounts to much the same thing. But he must share his treasure. Rene Jean was eager to harness himself to the wagon, and Georgette tried to get in and sit down. Rene Jean was the horse, Groalan the coachman. But the coachman did not know his business, and the horse felt obliged to give him a few lessons. So get up, cried Rene Jean. Get up, 
repeated Groalam. The carriage upset, and Georgette fell out, whereupon she proceeded to make it known that angels can shriek, and after that she had half a mind to cry. You are too big, Missy, said Ronéjean. I b big, stammered Georgette, and her vanity seemed to console her for her fall. The cornice under the windows was very wide, and the dust of the fields from the heath-covered plateau had collected there. After the rains had changed this dust into soil, among the seeds wafted thither by the wind was a bramble, which, making the most of this shallow soil, had taken root therein. It was of the hardy variety known as the fox blackberry, and now in August it was covered with berries, and one of its branches, pushing its way through the window, hung down almost to the floor. Groalan, to the discovery of the string and the cart, added that of the blackberry vine. He went up to it, picked off a berry, and ate it. I'm hungry, said Ronéjean. And Georgette, galloping on her hands and knees, lost no time in making her appearance on the scene. The three together soon stripped the branch and devoured all the fruit. Staining their faces and hands with the purple juices and laughing aloud in their glee, these three little seraphs were speedily turned into three little fawns, who would have horrified Dante and charmed Virgil. Occasionally the thorns pricked their fingers. Every pleasure has its price. Pointing to the bush, and holding out her finger, on which stood a tiny drop of blood, Georgette said to Ronéjean, What? Groalan, who had also pricked himself, looked suspiciously at the bush and cried out, That is a beast! Now it's a stick, replied Ronéjean. Sticks are wicked, then, remarked Groalan. Again Georgette would have liked to cry, but she decided to laugh. 5. Meanwhile, Ronéjean, jealous perhaps of the discoveries of his younger brother Groalan, had conceived a grand project. For some time past, while he had been gathering the berries and pricking his fingers, his eyes had turned frequently towards the reading desk, which, raised on a pivot, stood alone like a monument in the middle of the library. On this desk was displayed the famous volume of St. Bartholomew. It was really a magnificent and remarkable quarto. It had been published at Cologne by Bleu, or Coesius, as he was called in Latin, the famous publisher of the Bible of 1682. It was printed not on Dutch paper, but on that fine Arabian paper so much admired by Idrisi, manufactured from silk and cotton, which always retains its whiteness. The binding was of gilded leather, and the clasps of silver. The fly-leaves were of that parchment which the Parisian parchment-sellers swore to buy at the Hall Saint-Maturon, and nowhere else. This volume was full of woodcuts, engravings on copper, and geographical maps of many countries, it contained a preface consisting of a protest from the printers, paper manufacturers, and booksellers against the Edict of 1635, which imposed a tax on leather, beer, cloven-footed animals, sea-fish, and paper. And on the back of the frontispiece was a dedication to the Griffs, who rank in the Onde with the Alzevirs in Amsterdam. And all this had combined to produce a famous copy almost as rare as the Apostol of Moscow. It was a beautiful book, and for that reason Ronéjean gazed at it. Too long, perhaps. The volume lay open just at the large engraving which represented St. Bartholomew carrying his skin on his arm. This print could be seen from below, and when the berries were eaten, Ronéjean gazed steadily at it with all his longing and greedy eyes. And Georgette, whose eyes had taken the same direction, spied the engraving and exclaimed, Victor! This word seemed to decide Ronéjean. Then, to the unbounded surprise of Groalan, a most remarkable proceeding took place. In one corner of the library stood a large oaken chair. Ronéjean went up to this chair, seized it, and dragged it across the room all alone by himself to the desk. Then, pushing it close up to the latter, he climbed upon it and put both his fists on the book. 
Having reached the height of his ambition, he felt that it behooved him to be generous. So, taking the picture by the upper corner, he carefully tore it in two, the tear crossing the saint diagonally, which was a pity, but that was no fault of Ronne Jean. The entire left side, one eye, and a fragment of the halo of this old apocryphal evangelist were left in the book. He offered Georgette the other half of the saint and the whole of his skin. Georgette, as she received it, remarked, Me too, cried Groalan. The tearing out of the first page is like the first shedding of blood in battle. It decides the carnage. Rone Jean turned over the page. Next to the saint came the commentator, Pantuanus. He bestowed Pantuanus upon Groalan. Meanwhile, Georgette had torn her large piece into two smaller ones, and then the two into four. Thus it might have been recorded in history that St. Bartholomew, after being flayed in Armenia, was quartered in Brittany. 6. The execution finished, Georgette held out her hand to Rone Jean for more. After the saint and his commentator came the frowning portraits of the glossarists. First came Gavantus. Rone Jean tore him out and placed him in Georgette's hand. A similar fate befell all the commentators of St. Bartholomew. The act of giving imparts a sense of superiority. Rone Jean kept nothing for himself. He knew that Groalan and Georgette were watching him, and that was enough for him. He was satisfied with the admiration of his audience. Rone Jean, inexhaustible in his magnificent generosity, offered Fabricius and Pignatelli to Groalan, and Father Stilting to Georgette, Alphonse Tostat to Groalan, Cornelius Alapide to Georgette, Groalan had Henry Hammond, and Georgette Father Roberti, together with an old view of the city of Douai, where the latter was born in 1619. Groalan received the protest of the paper manufacturers, while Georgette obtains a dedication to the griffs. And then came the maps, which Rone Jean also distributed. He gave Ethiopia to Groalan, and Lycaonia to Georgette, after which he threw the book on the floor. This was an awful moment. With mingled feelings of ecstasy and awe, Groalan and Georgette saw Rone Jean frown, stiffen his limbs, clench his fists, and push the massive quarto off the desk. It is really quite tragical to see a stably old book treated with such disrespect. The heavy volume, pushed from its resting place, hung a moment on the edge of the desk, hesitating, as if it were trying to keep its balance. Then it fell, crumpled and torn, with disjointed clasps and loosened from its binding, all flattened out upon the floor. Luckily it did not fall on the children. They were startled, but not crushed. The results of conquest have sometimes proved more fatal. Like all glories, it was accompanied by a loud noise and a cloud of dust. Having upset the book, Rene Jean now came down from the chair. For a moment silence and dismay prevailed, for victory has its terrors. The three children clung to one another's hands and gazed from a distance upon the ruins of this monstrous volume. After a brief pause, however, Groalan went up to it with an air of determination and gave it a kick. This was quite enough. The appetite for destruction is never sated. Rone Jean gave it a kick, too, and Georgette gave it another, which landed her on the floor, but in a sitting position, of which she at once took advantage to throw herself on St. Bartholomew. All respect was now at an end. Rone Jean and Groalan pounced upon it, jubilant, wild with excitement, triumphant and pitiless, tearing the prints, slashing the leaves, tearing out the markers, scratching the binding, detaching the gilded leather, pulling the nails from the silver corners, breaking the parchment, defacing the noble text working with hands, feet, nails, and teeth. Rosy, laughing, and fierce, they fell upon the defenseless evangelist like three angels of prey. They annihilated Armenia, Judea, and Benevento, where the relics of the saint are to be found. Nathaniel, who is supposed by some authorities to be the same as Bartholomew, 
Pope Gelasius, who declared the Gospel of Nathaniel Bartholomew apocryphal, and every portrait and map. Indeed, they were so utterly engrossed in their pitiless destruction of the old book that a mouse ran by unobserved. It might well be called extermination. To cut to pieces history, legend, science, miracles true or false, ecclesiastical Latin, superstition, fanaticism, and mysteries, thus to tear a whole religion to tatters, might be considered a work of time for three giants, and even for three children it was no small matter. They labored for hours, but at last they conquered, and nothing remained of St. Bartholomew. When they came to the end, when the last page was detached and the last print thrown on the floor, when all that was left in the skeleton binding were fragments of text and tattered portraits, Rene Jean rose to his feet, looked at the floor all strewn with scattered leaves, and clapped his hands in triumph. Groalan immediately did the same. Georgette rose, picked up a leaf from the floor, leaned against the windowsill that was just on a level with her chin, and began to tear the big page into tiny bits and throw them out of the window. When Rene Jean and Grovalan saw what she was doing, they were at once eager to follow her example, and picking up the pages they tore them over and over again, page by page, and threw the fragments outside the window as she had done. Thus almost the whole of that ancient book, torn by those destructive little fingers, went flying to the winds. Georgette dreamily watched the fluttering groups of tiny white papers blown about by every wind and cried, Butterflies! And here ended the massacre, its last traces vanishing in thin air. 7. Thus for the second time was St. Bartholomew put to death, he who had already suffered martyrdom in the year of our Lord 49. Meanwhile the evening was drawing on, and as the heat increased a certain drowsiness pervaded the atmosphere. Georgette's eyes were growing heavy. Rene Jean went to his crib, pulled out the sack of straw that served him for a mattress, dragged it to the window, and stretching himself out upon it said, Let us go to bed. Groalan leaned his head against Rene Jean. Georgette laid hers on Groalan, and thus the three culprits fell sound asleep. Warm breezes stole in at the open windows. The scent of wildflowers borne upon the wind from the ravines and hills mingled with the breath of evening. Nature lay calm and sympathetic. Radiance, peace, and love pervaded the world. The sunlight touched each object with a soft caress, and one felt in every pore of his being the harmony that springs from the profound tenderness of inanimate things. Infinity holds within itself the essence of motherhood. Creation is a miracle in full bloom, whose magnitude is perfected by its benevolence. One seemed to be conscious of an invisible presence exercising its mysterious influence in the dread conflict between created beings, protecting the helpless against the powerful. Beauty, meanwhile, on every side, its splendor only to be equaled by its tenderness. The landscape, calm and peaceful, displayed the enchanting hazy effects of light and shade over the fields and river. The smoke rose upwards to the clouds like reveries melting into dreams. Flocks of birds circled above the tourg. The swallows peeped in at the windows as much as to say, We've come to see if the children are sleeping comfortably. And pure and lovable they looked as they lay motionless, prettily grouped, like little half-naked cupids, their united ages amounting to less than nine years. Vague smiles hovered round their lips, reflecting dreams of paradise. Perchance Almighty God was whispering in their ears, since they were of those whom all human tongues unite to call the weak and the blessed. Theirs was the innocence that commands veneration. All was silent, as if the breath that stirred those tender bosoms were the business of the universe, and all creation paused to listen. Not a leaf rustled, not a blade of grass quivered. It seemed as if the wide, starry universe held its breath lest these three lowly but angelic slumberers should be disturbed, 
and nothing could be more sublime than the impressive reference of nature in the presence of this insignificance. The declining sun had nearly reached the horizon when suddenly, amid this profound peace, lightning flashed from the forest, followed by a savage report. A cannon had just been fired. The echoes seized this sound and magnified it to a dreadful din, and so frightful was the prolonged reverberation from hill to hill that it roused Georgette. She raised her head a little, lifted her finger, listened, then said, the noise ceased, and silence returned again. Georgette put her head back on Groalan and fell asleep again. End of section 50